You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 19th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Sweden signals its readiness to be a fully-fledged bastion of Europe's security architecture. New Zealand's Prime Minister gives a lesson in timing an exit, and which really is the world's rudest city. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Our guests Elizabeth Braw and Vincent McAvenny will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll check in with our team at Davos and we'll have Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Vincent McAvenny, political journalist and Monocle 24 regular, and by Elizabeth Braw, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a columnist for foreign policy. Hello to you both. Good afternoon. Hello. Um, Elizabeth, you join us from Washington, D.C. via, and this is germane to subsequent discussions, uh, a NATO thing in Brussels. That's right. Uh, although at the moment I'm here with you in the flesh, but I did join fly in from Washington to Brussels and then to London. And in Brussels, NATO was doing great things. The day I was there, uh, it was doing a conference on various issues pertaining to the private sector and uh, the chiefs of defense met that day. So uh, always a, uh, a hub of activity more than ever. Uh, Vincent, can you compete with that? I mean, not really. In the past week, I've been scratching my head. In the past week, I've been at a shootout scene in London, a drive-by shooting covering that. I mean, nothing as exciting as late. I I briefly thought you were about to sort of, you know, just languidly say, oh, in the past week, I've been in a shootout. No, 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 no. It was was just there a few hours later. (laughs) Well, which is is probably just as well. Uh, We will have more from our panellists shortly, but first to Davos, where the World Economic Forum's annual snowbound Beano is ongoing. And from where we are joined by Monocle 24's executive producer and presenter, Marcus Hippi. Uh, Marcus, first of all, what have been the headlines from today? Good evening from Switzerland, Andrew. Um, maybe not huge news today, but some interesting developments in, in any case. If we start with a guest from the UK, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has been here today to seem to try to seem more business friendly ahead of the elections that are not that far away anymore. And what he said today is that if Labour get to power in the UK, there won't be no investment on new UK oil and gas fields under a Labour government. We also heard today from South Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yeol, who was calling for strengthening of the resilience of global supply chains, saying that this is this is one of the most urgent tasks the world and the international community need to solve now. Obviously, looking at what the pandemic has done to global supply chains and various conflicts, looking at, for example, what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. Also, we heard from, talking about Ukraine, we heard from Dmitry Kuleva, who is Ukraine's foreign minister, what he said when he joined a discussion through a video link. He was saying that actually, Ukraine, well, is obviously wishing that partners would decide quicker what kind of help to offer. But at the end of the day, Ukraine is actually getting everything the country is asking for, except for two big things that should get more attention. And those two things are Western fighter jets and long range missiles. So another request from Ukraine. 
Um, something that I found maybe most interesting so far is what we heard from CEPI, which stands for an organization with a rather long name, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations. This organization and world leaders gathered here in Davos today to look at the lessons that were learned from the pandemic and 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 how we can improve the reaction, what to do if something like this happens again. And what was promised is that in the future, from the moment when the DNA of a virus has been has been found out, it should only take 100 days until we start vaccinating people. And if you compare that to what happened with COVID-19, it actually took 326 days. So hopefully in the future, if something like this happens again, the reaction is going to be much quicker. And just finally, um, Greta Thunberg arrived to, to Davos today. And I was a bit earlier jokingly wondering if she cycled to Switzerland, considering that she only arrived here on Thursday afternoon. And the World Economic Forum meeting is ending tomorrow after midday. Um, the World Economic Forum is obviously a big event which happens in quite a small location. What, what sense do you get of how much it benefits the, the local area? Well, actually, it's interesting because in the beginning of, of, of this, this gathering, when there weren't that many meetings taking place yet and when there wasn't that many news coming from Davos, we, we all got a press release from the organising committee trying to direct our attention to what is happening in Davos outside of this conference and, and to what this place is known for. And what caught <coughs> my attention is that this place actually is, is, is a pretty good innovation hub and there's a lot of academic research taking place over here and actually I one of the interviews I did today was when I visited um, a centre for Avalanche and Snow Research, which is the world's leading facility here in Davos, trying to find new ways of detecting where avalanches may happen and to protect people. Uh, and just finally, Marcus, we, we have to ask you, regular listeners to Monocle 24 will know you best, perhaps, as the presenter uh, of our food and drink programme, The Menu. What have you made of the catering? Well, actually, um, the food has been good in general. I in particular enjoy those muesli bars that come with the World <laughs> Economic Forum wrapping. Um, I had some of the best bean soup I've had in my life when I was at the Congress Centre where, where only media representatives and the attendees can go. I think the food is better on that side. I heard from my colleague Tom Webb, who's been outside, that the food is not that great over there, but supposedly he had a great Indian curry from the India house. Um, I spoke to one of the catering companies that is looking for food over here, and it was interesting to hear that it's a massive operation feeding all these 3,000 people who are gathering over here. They brought 150 people from the UK alone. Uh, Marcus, we will let you get back to the bean soup terrine. Thank you for joining us from Davos. Uh, and we'll bring our panel back in now, Vincent McAvenny and Elizabeth Broad. But we will start, before we get to them, with a seamless cross-promotional plug. Uh, this Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk will take a long look at Germany's agonising over the degree to which it is willing to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia. Few, if any such qualms, appear to be besetting Sweden, which has announced another hefty weapons package for Ukraine. Sweden, despite its long centuries of obdurate neutrality, is a serious armaments manufacturer. It will be sending the Archer artillery system and a fleet of armoured infantry fighting vehicles. Um, Elizabeth, we've talked a few times over the last 11 months about the, well, 
180-degree skid, really, Sweden has pulled on its attitude to being part of Europe's collective defence since Russia attacked uh, Ukraine. It, you know, this time a year ago, I think you'd have got very long odds uh, on Sweden submitting its application to NATO. But what sense do you have on how on board the Swedish public is with this? As you say, Andrew, a lot has changed in the past mm. year, but we should remember that even before submitting uh, its NATO membership bid, Sweden was collaborating, very cooperating, very closely with NATO. Indeed so. It was almost as if, uh, you, well, Sweden and Finland, uh, they were cohabiting with NATO rather than being married to <laughs> NATO. So uh, making that that final commitment to... to uh, um, to uh, an ever closer union uh, wasn't that big of a step, but of course a very formal step. Uh, but what changed, of course, was uh, the Finnish public uh, radically changed its opinion mm. on NATO. It had been mostly opposed to NATO, whereas the Swedish public had been uh, basically something like 44% versus 30, 45%. So going back and forth um, around that that sort of uh, percentage. Uh, but now we have as, uh, uh, as permanent as anything is in this life, a permanent majority in support of, of um, NATO membership in Sweden and, and indeed in Finland. What is interesting, though, and I think what we should all watch, is whether Turkey's um, continued um, blocking of Swedish and, as a result, Finnish uh, uh, NATO membership, if that leads to uh, Swedes and Finns saying, well... Might as well not bother. If it's if it's going to take this long, we might as well stay outside the alliance. I think that's that's a development to watch. It hasn't happened so far, and uh, Sweden is clearly uh, demonstrating that it's it will be a valued member, of, uh, important and and crucial member of the alliance by sending these really quite significant uh, weapons deliveries to to Ukraine. Um, Vincent, as Elizabeth has foreshadowed there, Sweden's accession to NATO is not a done deal yet, nor is Finland's. Um, there are two countries being tedious about this. Uh, Hungary, which I think is merely just doing Hungary stuff. Um, but Turkey, which, as Elizabeth also says, I mean, they, they they seem to sort of wind their objections in circa the NATO summit in Madrid. That was the, the big Madrid summit announcement that Turkey had more or less got with the program and yet here we still are um what's your sense of how serious turkey really is about this if push comes to shove i don't think it is massively serious i think it's all just tied up with the election that is taking place there in a few months time president erdogan is battling like many leaders a cost of living crisis high inflation uh, and this is just a very easy gimmick in an election to point to to make himself look like he's a big big player on the world stage you wouldn't want to see him go he's pulling the strings of nato um so i i don't think and he'll keep the ruse going, I think, for as long as he can. But he might want a little victory before the election to say, oh, I'm the one that's brought new members mm. into NATO. So it does feel like that is starting to slide, maybe. Uh, Elizabeth, how careful does Sweden's government, <clears throat> and perhaps more to the point, the allies of Sweden's government, need to be about getting drawn into a bun fight with President Erdogan? Um, Jimmy Ackerson, the leader of the far-right Sweden Democrats, which is not part of the government, but is sort of propping the government up through a confidence and supply agreement, uh, called Erdogan an Islamist dictator. Is that going to help? 
I don't think it's going to help, but at, at the same time, Erdogan is, is obviously not making himself popular in Sweden. He's, he's making it very easy for people in Sweden to, to dislike him. And, and in fact, NATO opponents on the far left uh, put in front of, of the of the parliament building an effigy of, of Erdogan uh, being executed. Uh, and they they specifically said that they did that in order to aggravate him and and to... Uh, Th- that'll do it. To cause him to, <laughs> to further prolong his opposition to Swedish NATO membership. So there are all kinds of forces interested in, in, in a certain outcome here. Um, uh, I don't think... Uh, Jimmy Orkus on on his own uh, that that comment is is going to 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 much change um, uh, Erdogan's position, but clearly no foreign leader likes seeing an effigy of himself uh, being executed or or being losing his life uh, in in a country that wants something from that leader. So it was <laughs> it was a, a very clever strategy by those activists, um, and uh, the the I think that the thing to remember that is that authoritarian leaders are often very vain and that's something that you can capitalize on one way or another. Um, Vincent, there's there's another Swedish development which I think perhaps has a wider European context as well, which is they've announced, Sweden this is, has announced that it's going to start conscripting civilians uh, for emergency services and to double its military conscripts to 10,000 a year by 2030. Do you think this is something we're going to start or perhaps should start seeing more of across Europe? If 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 the if the idea has settled that, you know, Russia is Russia and Russia mm. is unlikely not to become Russia in the near future, we're we going to see more countries thinking along these lines. I mean, I think that's always been in the tradition and culture of those countries that border closely with Russia, mm. like uh, you know, former Eastern Bloc, like like Finland to have conscription. I don't think we'll see it sweeping across the sort of more Western uh, nations too much. A, a, a lot of those countries do have a reasonably recent history of it, though. Yes, uh, they do. But I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, if you just take an example of Britain, there is a big recruitment drive on at the moment. There's been a big dial up, I've noticed, in advertising on, on things like social media. I went to the cinema recently and there was uh, sort of four different military adverts playing before a movie. Um, so I think more that in terms of the UK, that they're not going to go down the conscription route. We could see other country, countries go for it. I mean, it depends what happens in the recession. Mm. If there is suddenly high, again, youth unemployment in many countries, it could be a convenient option to get people into work, to have them do uh, not just military work, but kind of, you know, emergency services work and all that kind of thing. If, if there's industrial action as well, which we're seeing a rise of. So so potentially, but each, each country very much has its own tradition of it that I think impacts. Well, to New Zealand now, which is shortly going to have to reacclimatize itself for better and for worse to having a prime minister who keeps having to introduce themselves when abroad. Jacinda Ardern has announced that she will stand down ahead of the general election due later this year. Well ahead indeed. She'll be gone by February 7th. Here is some of what she had to say. The decisions that have had to be made have been continual and they have been weighty. But I'm not leaving because it was hard. Had that been the case, I probably would have departed two months into the job. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. But I absolutely believe and know there are others around me who do. 
Though the flint-hearted sceptic might suggest that Arden was reading the same polls as everyone else and had elected to jump before New Zealand's voters pushed her, she will leave office at a time of her own choosing. A notoriously tricky political moment to judge. Um, Vincent, first of all, as a professional observer uh, of politics, do you take her reasons at face value or was she getting out ahead of being asked to go? Oh, this is really fascinating. I think, like many people, she maybe is experiencing pandemic burnout. Mm-hmm. And we've seen with leaders across the world, actually, if you think about the leaders that were in place during the most of the pandemic, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, change in Sweden as well. Lots of leaders, change in Australia. Mm-hmm. Lots of leaders in that time just simply, not only did it make them highly unpopular, unpopular with sections of the population, led to rise in threats and violence towards them, rising conspiracy theories involving them. Um, they, I think, are just pretty exhausted with the whole thing. And what's been interesting, I do quite a lot of work on New Zealand radio, and I think in the rest of the world, we have a kind of rosy picture of Jacinda Ardern because she pops up maybe every two, three weeks with a kind of key social media moment. But listening sometimes before I do stuff on New Zealand radio, I mean, she, you know, she has had quite tricky problems to deal with in the economy and housing in New Zealand, but also a level of misogyny, mm. uh, which is very much, I think, still intrinsic in that part of the world. We all remember Julia Gillard, her famous speech about misogyny in the Australian Parliament. And e- even just recently, you know, basically, it, even it, having been in the role for years now, Jacinda Ardern was still facing questions. I think when the Finnish Prime Minister was down for Christmas being like, oh, are you guys just having a girly conflab? Is that why you're getting together? So I think like many people, yes, of course, she reads the polls, but deciding when to go in politics perhaps she's always tried to model a different kind of leadership as she's saying perhaps she's trying to show know when your time is up and we'll see she might go away for a few years she obviously has a young family she said to her she you know finally has time to get married but there always has been this rumor that perhaps there's a big job waiting for her in new york the un's never mm. had a female secretary general before and she's been long touted as a possible contender for that well indeed so because one of the questions that she will get around to asking herself uh, elizabeth after she's had a bit of a rest is is what do i do now she is only 42 um she is almost certainly I think if you possibly scratch out Edmund Hillary, the most famous New Zealander who's ever lived, she's certainly the most recognisable on the world stage now. Um, what does she do? She takes a job with the World Economic Forum. That's <laughs> that's where many former politicians end up, Andrew, and on corporate boards. But as you, as, uh, you also suggested, there are... Uh, uh, UN agencies, not just the, the UN top job itself, but countless UN agencies where... Um, the people who uh, get appointed to the leadership are typically former national politicians. And it's uh, these are important jobs, but clearly a little bit of a consolation prize once you have left national politics, because no job can be as important for a national politician as the top job in your home country. But uh, the UN is a big organization with lots of, of uh, independent agencies. And there uh, is a good example of previous previous uh, New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark, who ended up mm. leading one of them. So uh, it's uh, a bit of a well-trodden path, even from, from New Zealand. And those, and those jobs aren't always guaranteed as well. If I think about David Cameron and Tony Blair in the UK, Tony Blair sort of stayed in too long, so many mistakes, so many issues, Iraq went so poorly that 
he was sort of ruled out. He, at one point, he might have been the EU president, and that disappeared with David Cameron as well. There's lots of talk that he might have gone on to get a big international job. He's got literally nothing going on. <laughs> um, and, and remember that Boris Johnson thought that he could become NATO Secretary General, and clearly that's not going to happen. Mm. Um, that's why he's writing his memoirs, probably. Because it is unusual, isn't it, Vincent? I was trying to think of other examples of politicians who had just decided when they had the option to continue, perhaps, you know what, I'm cooked, I'm out, I'm done. Um, American presidents, obviously, are term limited, yeah. as is the case in many other countries. But, I, I mean, Blair didn't want to go. I mean, no. he, he, did go, he did step down, but he clearly had been told you are done uh, Thatcher did not want to go um, it's 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 a tough thing to give up clearly that that kind of office and that kind of power I've been scratching my head thinking of others who have uh, the only one I can think of is uh, you know three four years ago Angela Merkel did think that okay I've had enough she was trying to plan her exit with the handover to AKK her sort of protege and then that all collapsed and then the pandemic well Donald Trump's elected and the pandemic kicks in as well. And she kept having to go on and go on and go on before finally last year she went. So she was someone that thought that she could manage this, but then events took over. Um, but I can't think of, of any others. And looking at Jacinda Ardern's record, you know, for a small country like uh, New Zealand, very far away, she's had a lot to deal with, with mm. uh, you know, the Christchurch terrorist incident, the volcanic eruption, the pandemic as well. One thing that still sticks out with me is, uh, not to discredit her her talents, there is still a problem in international politics that she benefited from what's called the Smurfette syndrome, in that if you're the only girl in the room, (laughs) you immediately, or sorry, woman in the room, you immediately attract more attention. And, and, you know, for years, Angela Merkel, the only woman in a G20 photo or a G7 photo, and often... The, the sort of female leaders get much more attention, much more scrutiny. They have a bigger she, she did, platform. I thought she, I always thought she was really good at finding a way to actually make that work for her. But though. She, she did. She yeah. didn't just be the only woman in the room. But it, it's sad that I think still her profile is so high mm. because there are still so few women around the you know when you look at the un uh, general assembly there are still so many uh, men in that room uh, elizabeth I, I was struck uh, and she, she did mention that in that clip we played just her reflection on and i think it is something we do forget and we do take for granted when we knock around the people who do these jobs just how absolutely uh, knackering it is and she has been prime minister for nearly six years and she did say you know as we heard her say i've nothing left in the tank she's exhausted and i i have you know when i've spoken to other former office holders over the years and asked them how they felt about or whether they missed the job, they will often reply eventually, but first I just wanted a night's sleep. Um, Is there an argument there for term limits? Should there be a point at which we have to admit to ourselves that these people are only human? You can't do this for that long and still be at your best. For all that she has had to cope with unusual crises, I think it's fair to say that being Prime Minister of New Zealand is a fairly low degree of difficulty rating where national leadership is concerned. It's a it's a prosperous, orderly and functional country. But she's been doing it for six years. She's really actually quite young and she says she's exhausted. Should we actually decide all countries that, you know, we can't people shouldn't go on forever? Well, imagine how Joe Biden must feel, uh, <laughs> the level of responsibility of being president of the United States of America uh, at that age. It must be truly taxing. Um, uh, but 
as you suggest, Andrew, term limits have worked well for 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 uh, the United States, and we should remember that they were introduced, even though it's it's not enshrined in law, but they were introduced after the American uh, electorate just kept uh, kept uh, electing FDR, <laughs> and some wise people decided that maybe it was not such a good idea. Then, of course, he died, and and that uh, problem was solved in, in that way, but. Uh, um, the voters may keep uh, electing somebody who uh, clearly has a, has a knack for winning elections, but may not be um, may not have uh, what it takes to to keep going uh, as as uh, somebody like Angela Merkel has. And it's it's just really tricky. Do you deny the voters their mm. chance to decide who should leave the country? What if they want to to vote Angela Merkel into office four times? Shouldn't they have the right to do it? Even if they see that maybe she doesn't have the same uh, energy that she had in in the first uh, parliamentary uh, period uh, when she was chancellor, so it's it's really tricky. Well, and to Germany now, where a conventional wisdom has long loomed that the citizens of its capital, Berlin, tend towards the brusque. However, a new survey by a market research company, which may not have enough to do with its days, has determined otherwise. Berlin, it says here, is not even among the top six rudest German cities, trailing politely behind Essen, Dresden, Frankfurt, Cologne, Dortmund and Munich, which is encouraging for those of us going to the security conference therein next month. Um, What has been, if any, the panel's experiences of Berlin? Do you find it notably rude? I haven't spent much time there. I've been a couple of times. I don't recall thinking that the citizens of this place are notably unpleasant. I recall everyone seeming actually fairly affable. So I've spent a lot of time in in Berlin. Um, I don't know whether it makes a difference uh, whether or not you speak German. So I speak German. I've uh, I've had the best of experiences in in Berlin, uh, but uh, Germans do have a tendency to tell you off if if you, for example, do something that that. Uh, <laughs> uh, did you did you cross the road on a red light? No, I would never make that mistake, Andrew. <laughs> uh, I do that here, never in Germany. Um, but uh, the the most uh, the rudest major city well, the, the city the major city with the most rude people has to be new york city and it's 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 um, it's a stereotype but it in my experience it definitely is true and i want to give a cheer for dresden uh, which was also on that list there are in my experience very friendly people in dresden I, I do want to come back to new york city's rudeness because there's there's a different way of looking at that i i think anyway um vincent is is perhaps the difficulty with and i don't know whether this is is foreign people visiting berlin finding it rude is perhaps the difficulty that the German language does have a tendency to sound like everything you're mm. being told yes. in the German language, even if... And it's often used by the villains in many films. Well, well or there's the that, but, yeah. but even if, I, I don't know off the... Elizabeth will know this off the top of your head. What is, for example, German for Vincent? I like what you've done with your hair. Also, das, was du mit deinen Haaren gemacht hast, hast das, das gefällt mir. See, that, that sounds vaguely menacing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, I mean, I, I've been to Berlin twice. I loved it, but I don't speak German. So maybe I was oblivious of people being rude to me. I do speak French. Uh, and uh, I ha- See, we, we do have to address the Paris question. Yes, and hands down, when I was asked which one in Europe, I mean, hands down, it's Paris. I will agree and with you. I will agree it. with you, Vincent. They relish it. And then particularly if they think that you can't speak French and you can understand everything that they're saying... 
they are incredibly rude. And, but it is part of the national character. And if you're only dipping in and out and you're not living there, it's fine. If you're living there, God, you know, friends have said it, it does get a lot. And I have worked for a French company before, and that is quite draining. Um, there, the, the, there is a business level of rudeness as well, uh, which is quite shocking. So I'm, I'm sure I have uh, relayed this from behind this microphone before, for which apologies. But I, I do have a vague recollection that years ago, an Australian newspaper ran a competition uh, for the best travel advice to give to people, Australians going overseas. I'm sure they stole this from a New Statesman competition. So so the runners-up were things like, you know, on entering a London underground carriage, it's customary to shake hands with every other passenger, that that, that kind of thing. But the, 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 the winning entry, and I think I recall this rightly, was that never uh, address a Parisian in French because the people of Paris really enjoy practising their English, especially with Australians. Uh, and if you, dress, if you address a Parisian in French and they pretend not to hear you, that is a quaint local custom, and the correct response is to grasp them firmly by the shoulders and say, hey, mate, are you deaf or something? Um, but the thing is with Paris, and you mentioned New York as well, Elizabeth, and I kind of think in both cases, the rudeness actually is part of the charm, because both of those cities, like no two other cities I can think of, absolutely revel in living up to every stereotype you arrive in it with for good and for bad and i kind of feel like it would be disappointing if you went to paris uh, and didn't get to into at least one argument with a waiter what, you want to suffer andrew is that the idea i it's, it's but it's just you you would be i don't know i'd feel shortchanged. is it is it mm. just me Go to Berlin. Um, I, I, I have been. I would like to go to again. The city I am going to nominate for myself as the rudest city I've ever set foot in, um, and I was there for quite a while, and I, I, I don't think it was me, um, is Beijing. Uh, granted, this was some time ago. It may have improved enormously, but I just found it incredibly aggressive, um, enormous culture of queue jumping. And I, by that point, spent long enough in Britain to be outraged by that. And <laughs> so with, with due apologies to our many, I'm sure, listeners in Beijing, that would be my tip. Um, out, outside of Europe and outside of the United States or outside the obvious of Paris and New York, does anybody else have anybody, any other cities you'd both like to attract hate mail from while you're here? Uh, I'd like to do the opposite um, <laughs> and highlight a city with a terrible reputation where people are extremely friendly, hospitable, welcoming, and that is Karachi. Okay. I, I, have, I have not had the pleasure. I have, however, been to, I've been to Islamabad, Rawalpindi, and Peshawar in Pakistan and struggled to name, frankly, three friendlier cities. Everybody was as hospitable as they could be. I will also go on that route and say that there's a misconception about Scotland in that people think that Edinburgh is like the sophisticated, friendly place and Glasgow is really rough. People in Glasgow are some of the friendliest and chattiest people you will ever meet and people in Edinburgh are not. And there's a saying in Scotland <laughs> Whereas people will say, if you knock on the door in Glasgow, they'll say, come in for your tea. And in Edinburgh, if you knock on the door, they'll say, you'll have had your tea. Uh, <laughs> and I think that is a misconception. I'd, I'd advise lots of people to go to Glasgow. It's got amazing architecture. It's often used as a double for American cities because it's one of the only UK cities in a grid pattern. Lots of design heritage from the likes of Rene McIntosh. And the people are just incredibly friendly. Uh, as a fellow Glasgow fan, I am not going to disagree with a word of that. Uh, Vincent McAvenny and Elizabeth Braw, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, Henry Rhys Sheridan with his latest letter from New York City. Fordham University is the third oldest university in New York State. 
Its historic Rose Hill campus in the Bronx has big green lawns. The oldest collection of mature American elm trees in the country and buildings designed to look like they're from the olden days. It's not the kind of environment you associate with an industrial dispute, but more than 600 of Fordham's teachers are preparing to strike at the end of the month. We are here fighting for a fair contract. We are here fighting for our students. Well, some students uh, will not have class today. Some of those classes canceled simply because their professors are walking the picket line. That's what they're doing as opposed to... They're being represented by two unions, Fordham Faculty United and SEIU Local 200 United. They're making three main demands of the university. Higher pay, healthcare benefits for adjunct faculty, and pay parity among all university departments. The move is part of a wave of labour disputes roiling US academia. To understand the turmoil, you need to know a bit about the hierarchy of academic staff within US universities. At the top are tenured professors. These are full-time academics with permanent posts. Historically, these jobs have been exceptionally secure. Theoretically, tenured professors can only be removed under extraordinary circumstances and enjoy benefits like medical insurance. There are also teaching jobs known as tenure-track positions. These aren't as secure as tenured jobs, but they're designed to lead to tenured positions and have similar benefits. The next tier of teaching staff are full-time non-tenure-track. These jobs typically don't lead to tenure, so they have lower prospects for development than tenure-track positions. But they're often entitled to some benefits and have the job security that comes with a full-time contract. At the bottom of the academic teaching hierarchy are adjunct teaching staff. These are part-timers employed on temporary contracts. Like part-time workers in other industries, they receive no benefits and have no job security. But unlike most part-time workers in other industries, many adjuncts have advanced degrees and are saddled with tens of thousands of dollars in student debt. There is a way of using adjuncts to add real value to the learning experience at a university. For example, a medical department might bring in a practicing doctor who's employed full-time at a hospital to teach a course in their field of expertise as an adjunct. But US universities have increasingly come to rely on adjuncts as a form of cheap labour to provide their core teaching. In 1969, roughly 80% of faculty members at colleges and universities in the US held tenure or tenure-track positions. Today, non-tenure-track adjuncts make up around 70% of teaching staff at US universities. This casualization of the workforce is a terrible deal for academics. In 2020, the American Federation of Teachers surveyed about 1,900 adjuncts. 90% of them had at least a master's degree, but 60% made less than $50,000 a year, and almost a quarter made less than $25,000 annually, which is below the federal poverty line for a family of four. People need the money. People are suffering. We are living in an unprecedented time right now. And I look at the wages that um, Fordham has offered us, in particular the adjuncts. 
You know, people deserve to be able to have a living wage, to be able to make enough where they can live. Aside from lacking health benefits and job security, many adjuncts travel between multiple colleges, teaching classes to make ends meet. They also often spend many uncompensated hours on routine tasks, like lesson preparation, office hours, and serving on committees. This state of affairs is also arguably bad for US students, many of whom pay tens of thousands of dollars per year in tuition fees, only to be taught for the most part by underpaid and overworked part-timers. With adjuncts so numerous and so immiserated, it shouldn't come as a surprise that they're organising to get a better deal. In December of last year, Adjuncts at the new school in Manhattan came to a five-year agreement with the university to boost wages, protect healthcare benefits and add paid family leave and out-of-classroom compensation. But this was only arrived at after a 25-day strike, the longest adjunct professor strike in US history. A month before that, adjuncts at NYU reached a tentative agreement with the school after months of failed negotiations culminated in union members threatening to strike. These are benefits workers should be getting without having to threaten strike action, but it's unlikely US universities are going to give them over without a fight. The sector faces genuine financial challenges, and besides, it's bloated with expensive administrative staffs, whose interests are in many ways opposed to those of the teaching staff. The US higher education sector is badly in need of reform. The organising efforts of adjuncts might be our best hope for getting it. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to our panellists today, Elizabeth Braugh and Vincent McAvenny, also to Marcus Hippie in Davos at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.